0: Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing pediatric hospitalization, obstacles, and opportunities for OT practitioners, with our guest, Dr. Laura Stimler. Thanks for listening.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Dennis Cleary. I'm a senior researcher and occupational therapist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Really pleased to be joined today by Dr. Laura Stimler, who is a faculty member at Spalding University in beautiful Louisville, Kentucky. How'd I do with Louisville? Pretty good? Pretty good, pretty good. Okay, thank you, thank you. So we're gonna talk (laughs) about pediatric hospitalization Obstacles and opportunities for OT practitioners. And Laura, you're an expert. So could you just tell us a little bit about your background and sort of some of your uh, expertise that has brought us here to the podcast today?
2: Thanks, Dennis. It's so nice to speak with you today. And um, I always enjoy opportunities like this. So thank you for having me back, um, OT.com. So, first, I've been working as an OT since about 2002. And I started in the pediatric skilled nursing facility called Home of the Innocents here in Louisville, Kentucky. And I've absolutely fell in love working with pediatric, um, medically fragile children in the hospital-based setting. And at that point in my life, I was ready to, uh, for a change of scenery, and I decided to move to New York City after working for about a year. But because I love the pediatric skilled nursing setting so much, I looked for a similar type of setting in New York City, where I found the pediatric, the Elizabeth Seton Pediatric um, Center that serves a similar medically fragile population. So, after getting about four years or so of that of working in that type of setting under my belt, I decided I wanted to switch gears and explore more critical care and. Uh, just kind of dive into the role of OT in the acute care setting. So I learned about an available position at Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center in Manhattan, and I happened to be in the right place at the right time because they were looking to expand their pediatric oncology Rehabilitation programming. So I was so fortunate over a course of about nine years to work with amazing mentors, Claudine Campbell, Mackenzie Perglotti, and others who collaborated with many other disciplines to help um, sort of establish and create really solid, a really solid foundation for a well-established pediatric program. So it was during my tenure really at Memorial Sloan Kettering that I absolutely fell in love with the pediatric acute care oncology population specifically, but really working with with medically fragile children and the pediatric incentive care unit.
1: Great. So in terms of that, so these were kids that were coming in for surgeries or they were coming in uh, to get treatment or what kind of kids were you seeing typically?
2: At Memorial Sloan Kettering, when I first started to work there, we had the pediatric observation unit. So that specific unit served children Uh, after surgery. So they came after surgeries for planned admissions, for close observation. It was also a space that was available for children who had very complicated medical conditions that needed to be more closely monitored. And over the years, uh, the pediatric observation unit was transitioned to a true pediatric intensive care unit. So that was a really exciting effort to be a part of and watch come to fruition because what started as a three-bed pediatric observation unit Uh, was then transitioned to a five to six bed pediatric uh, intensive care unit. So at that point, um, when with the transition from, we called it the poo, with the transition from the poo to the PICU, the hospital was able to serve children really of all levels of of, um, critical needs. So as far as the PICU setting, we were able to keep children that required mechanical ventilation and just more intensive treatments that we otherwise previously would have had to transfer maybe to another hospital setting. So post-surgical care, close observation, many, many different types of issues.
1: Great. And these were kids, what was the average age or not average age, but what was the the span of the ages of, of kids that you'd work with?
2: It's interesting in the oncology setting specifically, we serve children, the youngest patient I saw in the PICU was four days old, and that was a baby that was diagnosed with a very rare type of leukemia and um, blood-related issues. And in that setting, we treated up through young adults. And it's interesting in oncology, uh, depending on the age of the child, um, you know, if they have a cancer diagnosed in childhood, in childhood, oftentimes as the same medical team will follow them for years and years into their survivorship. So we would often see older adolescents and young adults as well in that particular PICU setting. So a very wide range of ages.
1: Great. And I, I see from your bio that, um, so you're you're now having some advanced degrees. So could you talk a little bit about that and what what led you to, to get those advanced, more advanced degrees?
2: Sure. So while working in the pediatric acute care oncology setting I decided to go back for a clinical OT degree that I earned at Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions and I focused on their pediatric science track and it was at that time when I did my capstone I was I was really passionate about creating continuing education resources for OT practitioners specifically
1: you're in the right place for that then
2: I was just telling a group of students I work with, when I did my capstone in 2014, I had six articles that included the role of occupational therapy specific for pediatric oncology, and I just, I really wanted to contribute to available literature to help help guide therapists on how to manage a really specialized population. So, um, I, I don't know, I, um, I can't say no to education opportunities, so... Here, I'm currently in the middle of my EDD program because I, um, with my recent journey to academia, I'm shifting gears a little bit and I really want to strengthen my personal research skills for personal and professional reasons, but also to support the students I work with in our doctoral program with their research efforts. So I just, I really love to support publications and continuing education efforts, specifically in peds oncology, but really all of pediatric hospitalization.
1: Wonderful, and I'm sure you're bringing those resources to the classroom, which I know your students appreciate. Um, could you just talk a little bit about what are some of the, the greatest barriers to participation and occupations for children when they're in, in hospital? Other than missing school, which maybe they like or maybe they don't like, I guess. Right.
2: (laughs) Yes. Um, So it's pretty standard for children just, um, you know, immediately when they're removed from their natural environment. Of course, they're going to experience changes in routines and typical roles, and they have to accommodate, you know, to a new environment. So when you go back to the occupational therapy practice framework and the beautiful long list of occupations, every single one of them can be checked as you know, um, being directly impacted for a child who's hospitalized. So it's it um, it is it's a pretty global um, effect. Um, but also, when you think about the significance of the lack of predictability in a hospital based setting, it can be overwhelming for everyone. And fear and pain are common issues, and they're frequently associated with many of the conditions that children are hospitalized for also frequent transitions in care between hospital units and uh, caregiver separation. So there are a lot of things just related to the daily routine of being in an unfamiliar environment that can be overwhelming to everyone.
1: Great. Um, And then can you talk sort of the types of things that occupational therapy can offer to to children and families during hospitalization?
2: Sure. So uh, I always love to read the the newly published workforce and salary survey published by aota and in, in 2019 that the trends are, are similar but almost 30 percent i think it's 28 percent of ot's work in hospital-based settings so this i believe was a combination of pediatric hospitals adult-based hospitals but at the end of the day it's the most common work setting for ot's so knowing that and also according to the committee on hospital care About 5 million children between the ages of birth to 17 are hospitalized annually. So as OTs, we're very well positioned to have a significant impact and play play a pretty dramatic role in the experience of a lot of families. Um, So some of the more common reasons for pediatric acute care hospitalizations are due to respiratory distress including acute bronchiolitis, asthma, pneumonia, of course, COVID um, today, appendicitis, uh, seizures, infections, dehydration. Um, Other reasons might be uh, traumatic injuries, um, different types of trauma, and other acute illnesses. And many of the children with these conditions are at high risk for secondary issues. So those might include things like decreased strength, compromised cardiovascular and respiratory systems, uh, psychosocial concerns, emotional distress. So um, as OTs, we play a really important role in preventing some of those secondary issues. So helping to support families and, you know, to help keep children active and um, engaged as much as possible in what would be their typical routine is, is really important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're getting your, your EDD and you have your clinical doctorate NoTe, So you have an, an interest in evidence. So can you talk a little bit about how we can incorporate evidence-based practice when we're working with these, you know, potentially really vulnerable ch- children we're supporting?
2: Sure. So I think I've had experience working in departments that really prioritize evidence-based practice. And I've also worked in others that they're more worried about meeting productivity demands. And those priorities are really evident, you know, I think on all levels. So um, some easy strategies that I've seen when working in programs that really prioritize building evidence into these fast-paced, complex, dynamic acute care settings are things like uh, facilitating, you know, an article discussion or a journal club on a monthly basis. Um, other activities are, you know, presenting in-services to an apart- a department or, making it a priority to build time in the therapist's schedule for the OTs to attend in services in other departments. So they gain a more holistic understanding of services delivered in the the hospital and what's available to the children that we we work with. And I just think, um, you know, in my experience when working in for institutions that really prioritize building evidence in, what can feel like an overwhelming setting sometimes it has a multi-layered impact. So first, of course, the children benefit, right? The client outcomes are are improved, but I think it also, it it improves the morale of the program because as OTs, as we observe others, you know, making it a priority for us to learn about what others in our profession are doing, it's going to make us want to do our best and, and practice best evidence. So, um, I think it's little steps like that that can really help to create a high standard of care and and develop this culture shift to a more evidence-based approach and set the bar high.
1: Yeah, and I know there's some um, really organizations that are really dedicated to the evidence-based practice and in terms of even allowing some therapists to have part of their FTE devoted to that, and there's some that, you know, um, really incentivize and reward um, that to be able to you know, have at least people on the team that have that as part of their their paid role. And I, I know I think we're going to be talking about students here in a second, but just to put a shout out for, especially OTD capstone students um, are a phenomenal resource. Um, I think one of the things, I used to be a fieldwork coordinator in a previous life and then also a capstone coordinator, um, and so fieldwork, it really is about helping the student Kind of figure out how to be a therapist and and productivity is certainly a part of that um but within the capstone there just is so much more freedom um to really um concentrate on some of those higher level skills you know to give people a little bit more flexibility i don't know if you're seeing that i know you guys are transitioning at spalding to the otd currently
2: absolutely and i i am so happy you brought that up you beat me to it um Please make room for OTD students in your practice. I'm speaking to the hospital-based therapists working in pediatric settings, and I know that right now, especially with COVID and everything going on, that um, you know, just you know, stricter isolation precautions and visitation requirements are are more rigid. Um, students, it can be such a win-win for all involved, and in working with the students. At our university, we really embrace community-based practice, and for those, I'm, um, I am uh, partnered with many students who are interested in rehab oncology specifically. So right now, especially during COVID, it's incredibly difficult to establish partnerships with institutions that are, um, uh, that are um, National Cancer Institute-approved um, hospitals that are providing active cancer treatment because you know. Regulations are so strict right now. So as a way kind of um, around that and to set students up for really rich capstone experience, we worked closely with more community based partners to help build sort of bridge programs um, and um, to help it, uh, more com- and just to focus more heavily on reaching this population specifically um in different community-based settings. But um, I think capstone students are a fantastic way to build programs that are evidence-based while the students are very, you know, closely supported by faculty um, who have a research interest in that area too. I think another benefit to partnering with a capstone student is that that closer relationship with the university oftentimes offers um, and affords a hospital-based setting more resources as far as, you uh, Peer-reviewed journals and databases and that sort of thing. So that can be a really exciting collaboration for all involved.
1: Yeah, and I know at Cincinnati Children's, we're doing our best to try to support um, as many capstone students as we can. I know I actually have two right now. That's how much I care about this. And uh, that's great. And I think when that's we great. help have students that expect that they're going to be using evidence and practice, that that's going to continue after they graduate, and um, you know, this next generation of of therapists that are going to be caring for me when I'm old. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Can you just talk a little bit about like formal standards or guidelines that OT practitioners may use uh, in terms of bringing evidence-based practice to hospitals, specifically for psychosocial needs or or other needs, especially for these kids that are really sick?
2: Sure. And I think over the years, we've seen many guidelines emerge regarding specific conditions and Um, that are very, you know, tailored to meeting children and families where they are during different points of care. So one example is the National Comprehensive Cancer Institute offers pretty helpful guidelines on phases of care that might require closer observation to meet psychosocial needs and assess psychosocial needs. So they are very specific in identifying times that children and families might be more vulnerable to experiencing emotional distress um, and um, you know, even post-traumatic stress disorder after certain types of treatment and, and experiences in the hospital. Um, so that's one example of many. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Hospital Care also offers pretty specific regulations and standards with how to interact and utilize certain disciplines um, and certain interprofessional collaborations collaborative efforts. So um, AOTA actually, I really like um, their recent publication on addressing acute stress and trauma, the decision guide that they posted in response to COVID-19. So I think AOTA, um, if you look on their website and um, kind of, you know, search different specialty topics in pediatric hospitalization, they offer uh, a pretty significant amount um, as far as decision trees and how to navigate different Different complex issues that are that are timely, and is including COVID, and I I would like to speak to, um, you know, sort of a couple other issues. And I think one thing that can be so overwhelming and complex about the acute care environment is the 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 medical complexity and the impact that lab values and the lines and tubes and the, all the levels of everything involved. It's kind of like where do we start? So I've had really um, I've, I've had really unique experiences working in the oncology setting where oftentimes we're, we sort of look to, not sort of, we do look to nursing standards and, um, you know, activity parameters established outside the scope of OT. And I think it's unfortunate because sometimes when those standards or uh, guidelines are not well understood and when they're broad people tend to be very conservative in what they do with patients. So when we think about kids in the hospital, um, I think it's really important that OTs are confident and advocate on behalf of um, the kiddos we work with who are especially at risk for issues related to to immobility. So an, an example I'll share, um, I was part of a retrospective research study, and we looked at children admitted for stem cell transplantation that were diagnosed with thrombocytopenia. And we wanted to see if there were any associations between activities in occupational therapy. No, I just want
1: to say, I'm sure everyone out there knows what thrombocytopenia is, but would you just d- describe that quickly?
2: Thrombocytopenia is a condition that occurs when individuals have low platelet counts, putting them at high risk for bleeding. Gotcha. So oftentimes when, and the, the many times, you know, the actual definition of it or the level, it may be, you know, hospital or institution specific. So- when children present with these specific blood levels, often you know, a decision is made to just hold therapy. And that can be really detrimental to kids who are in bed all day. So we wanted to look to see if there were true associations asso- between occupational therapy activities and, and the occurrence of bleeding adverse effects. And we didn't find a, that those were not commonly associated as impacting each other. So- my point is, I think as a profession, we, um, it would definitely be in the interest of our, our patients for us to really work together to create um, OT-specific guidelines and parameters to support what we can offer the, the kids.
1: And do you find that nurses or physicians are open to that, to at least, um, you know, working with you to make sure that the, the kid is safe, but at the same time, you know, a lot of times occupational therapy is the best part of their day? I know we're biased in saying that, but
2: Yep. And I think I think I think being loud to the medical team, nurses, doctors, physician assistants, being loud about how great our services are and and all the good that we can do and the potential there is if children um, engage as much as as much as possible. So my in my experience, you know, I developing partnerships with those other people on the team simply learning their names, <laughs> having um, just uh, making an effort to interact with them and and close the loop back with your referral source. So getting a referral from a physician, they may not fully understand what you're even going to do with the child, but they they trust that <laughs> you're the expert in helping the child, you know, gain their functional um abilities back so I just think absolutely include I mean we have to in order to we we have to include them in those types of decisions but sometimes it needs to come from us because we have a better understanding of what a child is able to engage in based on on lab values and so on so
1: great and I think especially in the midst of COVID where we are really trying to work so cohesively as a team and you know maybe it's helping to you know, put a kid back to bed or, you know, getting them out of bed, the things that sometimes, especially right now that nurses are are overworked to the point that anything we can do to make their life easier, um, suddenly they're going to be more interested in helping us as well, probably. I don't know if that's been your experience, but it's always been mine.
2: Absolutely. We've got to work as a team. Got to work as a team. And I, I also find it, I find it's helpful to really make an effort to see exactly how we can shift our day to support nurses and you know other allied health professionals and just make an effort to say hey what's on your agenda for today for the you know the kiddo that we both plan to work with how can i schedule my session with this child to make your day easier to make it more effective for the child so got to be a team
1: so obviously we're our aim is always to use a standardized assessment as much as possible Um, but sometimes there's going to be barriers that get in the way of doing those standardized assessments? Do you have any recommendations on what we can do to try to get those in there or um, kind of maybe best practice uh, in terms of of balancing standardized assessments with some of the productivity demands we find ourselves with?
2: I think, and this has always been sort of a, um, a frustration of mine because I, you know, It it is time-consuming, and it does feel like there are so many barriers to using standardized assessments in acute care for children. But I think recently more types of screening tools are being published that are age-appropriate for a broader scope of of clients that we work with. Also, um, there are more focused... Um, assessments available on uh, different conditions. So thinking of client factors. So one, you know, delirium assessments. There's a broader scope of delirium assessments that are absolutely appropriate for OTs to use that are meaningful in the acute care um, setting. Um, Also, the pediatric quality of life inventory is a great screening tool that has condition-specific modules that, you know, can be used more of a screening tool to see if, you know, it's appropriate to and Uh, necessary to kind of uh, get other disciplines involved as well to meet a child's needs as far as health-related quality of life. But I just think there have been uh, many uh, new standardized assessments that are more appropriate for the acute care setting. Um, So I would, I would recommend making sure to have a, a broad scope that addresses, you know, very young children up through, through adolescent, you know, it's with the adolescent population in pediatric hospitals, they're often kind of lost in the mix. And that's not an OT specific issue. That's a, I think, healthcare system issue. And these adolescents that are used to being part of these pediatric health systems for years and years, especially those who have chronic and critical, critical chronic conditions, um, they often they they can often get lost in the mix, and so it's so important to provide and utilize age-specific standardized assessments intentionally to meet the needs of you know very young children up through adolescents and young adults.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that. the The most used uh, book in our profession, at least acad- in academic settings, is Occupational Therapy for the Child and Adolescent. So it's now Case Smith's Occupational Therapy for the Child and Adolescents, and it was because. Um, <laughs> Kind of figured out that there are adolescents as well not just not just uh children that we're working with um it goes across settings certainly um so in terms of we talked a little bit earlier about teams and uh the interdisciplinary team the interdisciplinary approach um what kind of recommendations do you have for ot's to help facilitate that good collaboration among teams and in a, in a pediatric hospital what are the other types of members of the team that you're likely to run into.
2: In my experience, I've worked very closely with child life specialists and I think they just have these superpowers and amazing way of meeting children and families where they are and they just they're fantastic at providing age-appropriate and timely descriptions of procedures that need to happen or information about a medical condition that a child can understand. And within the course of, you know, occupational therapy treatment, they can also be really helpful in from a motivational perspective, um, you know, helping to partner with the therapist. So I think that, you know, the philosophies of child life and and OT overlap and complement each other beautifully. And it it just makes for a really great, um, effective partnership and setting a child up for their most successful day and, you know, establishing a, a routine and establishing a schedule, getting all hands on deck in a way, you know, to organize a child's day that is the most helpful uh, for them also nursing we have to partner with our nurses and so i think it's important to when possible and when time allows reach out to the nurse first thing in the morning of your day if possible and just out of respect of their time and the family and child you're working with try to schedule as much as possible and also partnering with nursing to figure out which medications we need to schedule ROT sessions around and that could change on a daily basis, especially in the PICU setting. So I think partnering with nursing to help get a clear picture of what the child's needs are from a uh, medication perspective is really helpful. Respiratory therapists. I love working with respiratory therapists and I know they are busier than ever. (laughs) Yes, they are. Yes. Um, But as far as, you know, the emerging early mobility programs in both Both PICU and NICU settings, um, respiratory therapists are play an impaired a critical role in bringing those programs to life um, as well. So, um, but I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, just recognizing the unique value in other professions and helping them to understand the unique value we can offer as OTs and how that looks differently, you know, and how that differs between patients. So for example, the needs of a young child admitted to the hospital for a stem cell transplantation will have very different needs and expectations than a child admitted to the hospital for spinal cord injury or near drowning, whatever, whatever it may be. So just recognizing and helping to other professions understand what we can contribute and then letting, you know, making it evident that we appreciate what they can offer too.
1: Yeah. How about those uh, those pesky physical therapists and <laughs> speech language pathologists that we, we tend to do a lot of co-treatment with? So you want to talk about some of your experiences with the other members of the TRI Alliance. Absol- do you know where the TRI Alliance is? Yes. And speech I did. Alliance. I did.
2: It's I very did. exciting. Yes, it is. It is. And I think I didn't mention them because it's a given that we work so closely together. I love our PT and SLP friends. <laughs> um, so in my experience in the You. I've worked very closely in collaboration with physical therapists, especially in the early phases of mobilizing children after either complex procedures or accidents for a variety of reasons. But it is a great way to be, um, you know, safe and effective the first, you know, couple times that you work with a child who is in very critical condition. And um, it's, we just, of course, we're always partners in, in working with and
0: establishing a consistent plan. Um. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to OccupationalTherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12 This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to OccupationalTherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with OccupationalTherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's OccupationalTherapy.com promo code podcast p-o-d-c-a-s-t to get started today
2: from a rehab perspective with with medical care providers as well Mm -hmm.
1: gotcha did you um do much in when you were in new york uh with dysphagia with speech language pathologists or how did you negotiate that
2: we did so in new york when i worked in early intervention and in uh Pediatric skilled nursing. Our speech language pathologist definitely took the lead on that in the settings that I I worked in. And depending on the child and their needs, you know, OT was of course on board more to address the self feeding component. But in my experience, the places I've worked in New York, the speech language pathologist um, definitely addressed that. Um, also in the acute care setting, and I know that's very different between hospitals. In my experience. Um, In the acute care setting I worked in in New York, we had, oh, my gosh, between 30 and 40, um, at least at the time, occupational and physical therapists combined and only three, I think, SLPs at that time. So their primary focus was really, um, you know, assessing swallowing and and addressing those issues um, in that in that environment.
1: Yeah, so it's good to have those friends, especially when we're working on feeding. And there are, you know, just there are some regional differences with dysphagia in terms of, um, and even hospital to hospital, sometimes, um, you know, the OTs can take a lead or just, you know, be close collaborators with that speech language pathologist because, especially, with a lot of these really young children, um, and folks with developmental disabilities when they're younger, especially positioning is such an important piece of of keeping people safe and so you know the the better we can work together um hopefully the better outcomes that um the kiddos we're supporting are
2: do you use the word kiddo
1: is that pretty common i do
2: i do i might have even typed it in my notes
1: i (laughs) I use it all the time do you call your own children kiddos
2: yes yes i do That's good,
1: I like the word kiddo a lot as well
2: I do too I do too
1: um so any any advice so as part of those um you know relationships with our o t and or I'm, I'm sorry our p t and our speech language pathology and our nursing friends and social work friends any tips you have in terms of just trying to foster that really strong relationship and partnership uh, between the different disciplines
2: I think just avoiding unnecessary silly turf wars that are just silly and really establishing a partnership with the other disciplines and the families and other medical professionals that we work with um i think keeping the lines of communication open with other disciplines and your referral base is really important um and just it's going back to therapeutic use of self and that may sound silly but it's you know it is so critical in being intentional, I think, with our interactions with the kids and families we work with. But it, we need to use, I think, that same approach to, to other disciplines because different disciplines have different needs um, and different amounts of time and different times of the day are, are more helpful for certain people to have conversations than others. So I just think being respectful and intentional and mindful about that can be really helpful. Um, yeah.
1: I th- so one thing that always has been a just something that... Uh, when I had students, they would ring it up to me on a ongoing basis. So when you have a, a physician that does a referral for occupational therapy that might say something like, Please keep this person occupied. Like how how do you how do you respond to that in a way that hopefully is educational for the physician and potentially helpful for the patient that we're we're wanting to support?
2: So I, I, I sort of gently nudge or offer, actually, it's a bit more than just keeping someone busy. Um, and I just, you know, sort of respectfully offer a little bit more information about what we are setting the child and, you know, family they referred to us to do. Um, and so I, I try to be intentional with offering specific um, information and, and specific activities guided by occupational therapy that you know are very unique and sort of distinct from other professions. So uh, always emphasizing that our role is to teach children and families to be empowered, advocate on their own behalf and um and participate. So it's not doing things for someone. It's encouraging them to do it independently. So I think sometimes the uh, individuals referring clients to us need a reminder of that as well that it's 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 more than just keeping somebody busy. Yeah, but
1: I, I think sometimes like a, a, a doctor is well-intentioned and it really is within our scope of practice. So like if they're looking at, you know, restraint reduction or something that's really important, um, I think we do have a, a strong role that we could play. I don't know if you've had any experiences with those types of situations.
2: Definitely. Definitely. Um, and it's I think, too, it's just it's helping um, physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners understand the the direction that we focus on when working with children and families. So, um, in, in New York, when, you know, we were in a time of very quick and rapid development in the pediatric oncology program, one of the attending physicians, what uh, was a huge, um, support of the rehab department and if he had it his way i think he would have rehab and you know working with kids every single day you know he would always say laura you need to go see this person's eight days a week for occupational therapy we got to get him up um sure. and you know before sort of this culture shift on the floor there was this underlying expectation that you know children and, and i'm speaking in generalities that's not a general consensus but there just wasn't when there wasn't a strong rehab presence the expectations were a bit lower even on the on the um from the perspective of you know physicians and um uh, other medical professionals so there was this expectation that you know if a child was admitted for a very 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 prolonged amount of time they would probably the day they were discharged need a wheelchair to leave the pediatric unit and so sort of after this sh- this shift in and this took years and years and years but what we saw was that once rehab was part of a consistent routine and there was this a shift in expectations of what everybody expected of the children to be able to do uh, families nurses doctors other professionals we got to a point where that same attending um, said you know what since there has been more of a presence of rehab on this floor he said these kids the day they're discharged they don't need wheelchairs to leave the unit anymore the day they're discharged and that just was so eye-opening and exciting for me but also I'm like we need to write that we need to put that on paper and publish it and there need to be you know we need data behind that so I think you know there are a lot of conversations that are being had but we also need to get a lot of this on you know uh, uh, published in collaboration with these physicians to really articulate the benefits of everything because we see these great things every day
1: absolutely Um, Could you talk a little bit about COVID and maybe how that's impacted sort of pediatric hospitals? I know that for a long time, even at at Cincinnati Children's, we certainly had COVID uh, patients all along, but, you know, sort of with uh, this most recent wave, it seems to have gotten much worse. Fortunately, the numbers have come down a little bit again, but um, can you just talk a little bit about that and how that's impacted hospitals?
2: Sure, sure. So, from my clinical experience recently has been I'm actually back at home of the Innocents uh, in a per diem position now that I'm, I'm teaching full time. So my perception during COVID was as a PRN therapist and just, you know, sort of during the thick of it over the last couple years um, those things that we talked about during the beginning, beginning of our discussion, things like social isolation um, and just some of those common barriers. I think those are just escalated and, Uh, Unfortunately, and um, with the, you know, the limitations on on staff availability and and limited support, I think that's compounded the issues that were already present and that children and families were already dealing with. Um, I think at this point, now that some of the restrictions are being lifted, that the weight can feel less heavy, but I think we're going to just now start to see some of the true trauma that occurred and it's going to manifest in different ways for children who are hospitalized. And, you know, I think we'll even see that in school-based practice as well. But I think the the trauma that occurred uh, during COVID and that continues now, um, that will become more and more evident over the months to come, I think. So I, I think OTs in hospital-based settings will have a really important role now and 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 the f- the near future to to really make an effort to recognize acute stress signs of acute stress and and have a good handle on what referrals to request and how to how to support families.
1: And AOTA's come out with some nice resources, right?
2: They have, they have. So I believe I mentioned. Um, Uh, Addressing Acute Stress and Trauma, a Decision Guide for COVID-19 is is available on their website, and um, they have a couple others as well. Um, And there are some good publications. You know, a lot of it is in the adult literature, but that's kind of true of everything, right? Pediatric literature is always, we're kind of catching up. Um, But I think, you know, the multi-system impairments from COVID are well documented. So, As practitioners, you know, that's something we want to always be mindful of and, you know, COVID manifests differently in children and, and, you know, the, the, the evidence is growing to really help us understand what that even is. But I think, um, I think there are some really solid resources available to help provide therapists with direction on, on what to just really keep a close eye on right now.
1: Great. And those will be listed in the handout uh, that you can get from occupationaltherapy.com as well. Um, Can you talk a little bit about things that occupational therapists can do to help um, ease some of the burden that families experience and kiddos experience when they're looking at the transition um, in care, when they're going from one setting to the next or from the hospital to home, those kinds of things.
2: Yes. And um, I would love your perspective on this too, because I know this is a, you have a lot of experience in this. I would love your perspective on everything we've discussed, but I know this is (laughs) um, an area you have a lot of experience in. So I think, I think these, easing the burdens of transitions and care is a great place to position students to build programming. So um, helping support families, um, depending on what, what their issue may be, there may be a medical reason that they need to continue to bring the child to that same hospital for, for rehab. So there might be benefits in keeping all of their care in the same system. There might also be great benefits by moving their care you know occupational therapy as an example to a community-based setting so the child can become more comfortable and the family can become more comfortable kind of loosening the ties with that hospital-based setting that's kind of been a security blanket you know for children with chronic or critical issues for a long time so i think um it needs to be a team decision you know when and where a child receives you know therapy services um specifically but i think students Uh, can be positioned to create really exciting programs and fill some gaps in, in, in those transitions. Um, I think it can also be helpful for a formal liaison to be established for families um, to kind of maintain the connection between the hospital-based practice and school-based practice in the family. And, And when we think about pediatric communities, kids are part of they can be part of so many different communities. If they're on sports teams, if they have families that live in different areas, if you know their school is far away from their, I mean, they're just associated with so many different communities. And I think it can feel really overwhelming for families to find common ground. So to have somebody who's established as a a formal liaison to take on that role, that's not the parent, um, can be really helpful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, you're right students are phenomenal at that it's sort of like um, they do a really nice job specifically at creating programs but also compiling resources so that you know maybe they've got a you know handouts a little old school but if you have access to your hospitals webpage and can even you know maybe create some discharge resources potentially you know obviously those can be printed out or included in their their medical record as they're leaving but you know especially like some of those connections like you talked about with community-based resources that um, are going to help support their engagement and occupations that other kids that maybe are not struggling with some of the issues that they're struggling with have access to um, at cincinnati children's we're really fortunate within within our program we have or within our department we have two um, obviously social workers are kind of with every kind of everywhere uh, within a hospital system but we have two Um, specifically they're not social workers they're actually um, kind of vocational rehabilitation counselors although they deal with all sorts of transition issues Um, but they're really experts at knowing what uh, resources are out there specifically looking at developmental disability vocational rehabilitation and then working with those school districts so that kids um, if they need an IEP you know if they're coming off with some significant restrictions or maybe they're immunocompromised and can't go back school and need to do some remote stuff um, you know how do we help support them so they can be successful uh, until their their you know immune systems are back to the point that they can return to school Um, so that would be I don't know if that was what you wanted or not but that's kind of what I what I've seen and again students can just be great at that I love Costco Um, here's the relationship to Costco so apparently Costco people love Costco because it's sort of like the right level of product that you need for what you want to do. There's not 10 different like lawnmowers there's one lawnmower they've done the work to figure out what the lawnmower is that most people need and so in some ways like a student can be sort of like that when they're creating resources or finding resources if you just have something for a family you know a a parent a family member that's kind of overwhelmed and can't just go to the google machine and just look at everything that's out there if you have somebody that's kind of curating it a little bit um, students that's that could be the new role for students We're, we're creating Curator occupational therapist. Maybe that's the the new frame that we can use. Um,
2: Absolutely. I I would love to share one example of uh, an idea one of our students brought to life during her capstone experience. She worked in an outpatient setting um, at a pediatric rehabilitation hospital and her focus of her capstone was to maximize leisure participation for children after being discharged Um, and she you know she had an interest in learning about uh, trauma-informed care and addressing specific issues related to physical trauma as well as emotional trauma Um, so her project she created an interactive map for Uh, children and families to use when they were discharged from this hospital. And within this interactive map, she created uh, sort of a key and resources that gave families information about was the site accessible? What age children was the site appropriate for? Um, Were there times of the day that the site was less busy for children who are immunocompromised compared to busier times of day? And if the site was accommodating to families, if they needed like a private space, um, So it just, it was incredible to see her bring all of these ideas and create an interactive website where families could actually click on different places that were on this, you know, map around the community. It was really exciting.
1: Awesome. I I just think students add so much to um, most of what we do. Uh, And so it's, you know, they're great potential resources. Um, Any other ideas in terms of capstones or these, these OTD uh, doctoral students and things they might be able to do to help you? in your everyday practice.
2: Um, Another idea (laughs) that I saw a student bring to life was just incredible. She, so this was a student who's very interested in working in pediatric oncology. And this was last year where it was, you know, very difficult to find a collaboration where a student would be positioned to actually work with children in active treatment or even post-treatment. So this particular student had experience as a dancer And she was a dance instructor. And so she created a program that allowed, it it hasn't actually been used, but I think, you know, that'll be next to come for her, I hope. Um, But she created a program that is accessible to children admitted to the hospital, and she created adaptive dance classes. So her goal was to meet the needs of children admitted to the hospital for cancer treatment with very specific issues. So, for example, she tailored a dance class appropriate for preschoolers that were not quite strong enough to uh, stand at the edge of their bed. So the adaptive dance program was designed for these children to, you know, participate in a choreographed routine sitting at the edge of their bed um, with supervision, of course. So that's just... Um, one example of of how students are being creative and creating resources for children who are hospitalized that they don't necessarily have an opportunity to directly interact with. So I just I'm always blown away with the idea students come up with. They're, it's so fun.
1: Absolutely. Uh, that's kind of the fun part of teaching and and part of what I, I miss and uh, I have an affiliation with the University of Cincinnati but no real strong uh, teaching responsibilities other than these capstone students. We had um, during COVID, we had a couple of, of Capstone students, and one of them actually um, did our was really responsible for our return to work PPE curriculum that we did in terms of helping young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities kind of figure out the importance of PPE and you know even created some some videos and supports to help them understand the necessity of it and, and how to even don and doff it. So uh, and I, by the way, every podcast, we will say the word Don and doff <laughs> at least once and we three, have to three jaw chuck is my other that's the yes. other one I'll, I'll try to see if i can get that thrown <laughs> into here at, at some point so i uh, still have a few minutes left for that um, so in terms of um, recommendations maybe for that student uh, who's graduating or for maybe an occupational therapist that's looking to to change settings and to to go into a pediatric hospital i always found as a fieldwork um, coordinator, it was probably the, the trickiest of all the settings in terms of of looking at placements for students. So, any advice you might have for the student going in, or someone looking to change uh, careers a little bit as an occupational therapist?
2: My number one recommendation would be to establish a mentor. If you can find someone in the field that can offer you resources, you know, either locally or in whatever capacity would be helpful. But I think finding a mentor who is a seasoned therapist in the practice area of your interest, that would be my first recommendation. For students, if they're living in an area that, you know, there may not be as uh, many available positions in pediatric hospital-based settings, I usually recommend that they try to get one foot in the door in some type of PRN, pediatric position, elsewhere so they can work on their pediatric specific skills. So that may be early intervention, it might be part-time in a school-based setting if that's an opportunity and then the other foot in the door working with in adult acute care. So combined their experience in pediatrics and then even if it's working with adults in a in a medical medically complex setting, it can help them gain an appreciation for and the confidence to work with um, you know children eventually in in medically complex settings. So um, also, I think there are a growing number of AOTA fellowship programs in pediatrics, and I think these are so exciting, and I'm totally jealous that these were not an option many, many years ago when I graduated, but a couple examples include Boston Children's Hospital, uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Um, I heard that's to name a really, a really good one. You've heard a lot of great things about that one, right? Maybe you can tell us a couple things. They're, um,
1: they're wonderful. And you're right. They're great experiences. Nationwide Children's also. Uh, so we have a lot of great hospitals, children's hospitals in Ohio. So we're very fortunate in that setting. But yeah, it's just a a wonderful part. The way that works is that um, 75% of your time, 80, 75, uh, a large percentage of your time is really in in treatment, and then 25% of the time or so, you're devoted to research types of activities. Um, usually, there's uh, uh, some affiliation. Well, there I think there has to be an affiliation with the university, so you get a little bit of practice teaching, and and not that you know we necessarily want everybody to be able to uh, hit a lecture spot on, but it really is whenever you teach, you have to think about um, what it is you're doing. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm uh, residency, we're, we're, I'm, I'm much older than you are. So we're way uh, way beyond the thought or the pale uh, when I was coming out. So um, no, I think those are great ideas. Any ideas on how to find a mentor?
2: I would, what I did, I mean, I picked up the phone and called a couple places, I did. <laughs> And especially when I was new to pediatric oncology, I literally picked up the phone and called other uh, hot cancer hospitals. And I just, I said, my name is so-and-so. I work with this population at this place. I would love to share ideas with someone who works with a similar population. So old school, pick up the phone and call. <laughs> also email. But there's just, there's so much information available um, that is, is easily accessible. But that, that would be my recommendation. Yeah, also I... fact. Go ahead
1: i was thinking aota as well if you go to the national conference um it's just a great way to meet people and uh so the key is not to be the first one in line when you're talking to a speaker but to be the last one in line at, and then they can't run well they'll try they'll say i have to i have another meeting i have to go and then just follow them no don't do anything creepy but um you know i think it's a good way to meet some of our national experts and i, I remember you know being uh when i was a student that. You know, you would have these people on pedestals and, um, you know, they're, most OTs are really kind, warm, exceptional human beings. I mean, there's a couple that are not, but most of us uh, are really good people. So it's, AOTA is a really nice way to meet those mentors as well. And also would have, if maybe it's a an academic and not a clinician, they probably have some clinicians that they can refer you to as well.
2: I was just going to say, it's... it's um... I've had a really fun opportunity at our university here at Spalding to create a a pediatric critical care um, elective course for our students. So for students who are, we have a specialty topics course where students can choose a couple areas that they're interested in depending on faculty availability and expertise. So I know here at Spalding in the creation of that course and other specialty topics courses, we really make an effort to involve guest speakers from other universities other hospitals other institutions so i would encourage students to reach out to those guest speakers that are introduced within your courses um, on topics of interest too don't be afraid to you know follow up via email with additional questions and ask for them to offer any resources they may be aware of
1: great i have great ideas for other people uh do you do you invite clinicians to attend any of your courses for their own learning so that might be a, a nice little way to to do that and see if you can offer continuing ed or something like that and have them maybe in the evenings when clinicians would be available in all your that free is time. A good... That's what you can yeah. do. Yeah, just in all your free time. But <laughs> I love that idea. About. Well, I think anything we can do to kind of cement the academic and the clinical aspect of our profession, because we all get along typically uh, and like each other. So anything we do to facilitate would be great. Um, so... So in terms of that, um, any other recommendations for um, people as they're maybe entering pediatric practice, the things they can do to help navigate the complexities of that acute care
2: setting? I think just um, uh, being intentional with trying to, you know, balance the the operational demands of hospital-based practice and remaining true to our, the occupational roots of, of, of OT practice. And this is a really hard thing to do, but I think if, if you can just prioritize always going back to the the main occupations that children engage in play, make that a priority in the hospital, um, have fun, create fun. And I know it can be a really overwhelming place to, to, um, uh, you know, make that a priority, um, or really bring that to life and make it happen. But I think always keep that at the forefront is just find meaningful, enjoyable things for the kids and families to engage in. Um, they're also really AOTA published, um, the acute care textbook is fantastic by AOTA Press and they have some really great survival tips that are posted uh, or published in that textbook as well. Um, and just always keeping practice guidelines accessible and current. And again, these might be practice guidelines from other Uh, professional organizations or or standards published by other um, institutions, or they might be department specific. So just whatever those are, keep them readily accessible so that you can spend the majority of your time focusing on um, other things instead of digging through um, just uh, many, many resources. So staying organized, I think is key. Um,
1: Can I give a a practice guideline tip? Please. Please so they publish a piece of them in ajot so uh if you like any practice guideline that is there typically there's a form of it that's an ajot so you know it's nice to have that access to that as well and that way when they do update it usually there's an update uh in ajot as well so nice way to
2: absolutely little tip for those
1: playing along at home definitely um definitely and uh so as we are winding our time up, it's hard to believe it's been almost an hour, um, but <laughs> can you just maybe give some final advice for, um, you know, practitioners that are really uh, interested in pediatric hospital or um, things that we can do to to help make the world a better place for, for kids that are, and therapists, and nurses, and other members of the healthcare team uh, within those pediatric hospitals?
2: I think... OTs are really well positioned to, to remain focused on the big picture and uh, just maintaining human connections, I would say. And so this goes, I, I think, you know, between OT practitioners, maintaining a connection with the kids that they work with and their families and taking a holistic top-down approach rather get, than getting, you know, hung up on, um, sort of the, the, um, skill-specific issues that I think are so often emphasized in, in acute care. And um, I think just using therapeutic, therapeutic use of self is everything. Um, and so I think it's important to remain cognizant and to be intentional with your interactions, not only with the clients we work with, but also with the people we work with, um, doctors, nurses, other health care professionals, maintenance, housekeeping. It takes all of us to support the kids and families we work with and the fragile state that we often meet them in. Um, and I think as it, in the acute care, you know, pediatric critical care settings, we could be working with a patient on their lowest day and just to remain positive remain positive and hopeful, I think for them um, is key and everything else will fall into place.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I, I'm old. So I remember um, someone once said to me that um, it's important what we do, but um, patients rarely remember what we do but they remember how they felt Uh, and so what are the things that we can do to really help them and sometimes we have to support kids as you said that are in pain or having a rough day but how do we do it in a way that kind of upholds their dignity in a way that kind of supports them so that you know we can be with them on a rough day and hopefully tomorrow's going to be a a better day for them so uh, Dr. Laura Stimler I'm from uh, Spalding University in Louisville Kentucky I really uh, this time has, has thrown flown by. So thanks so much for your time, and I hope you have a great day.
2: Thank you so much, Dennis. I really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you.